Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. This is George Mocharco, host of DC Entrepreneur, here on WERA 96.7 FM. I'm in the studio today with Jay Kim. Jay is the Chief Strategy Officer at Upskill, and he's an expert in the intersection of business and technology of augmented reality. He focuses on wearables and the Internet of Things, and he's an engineer and expert in wearable tech. So thanks for dropping by today. Thanks, George. Talk to me about Upskill. Tell me what you all do and tell me about your role with the company. So Upskill's in the business of bringing augmented reality into the, the industrial workforce. So if you think about the, the industrial workforce um, being the, the last frontier population uh, that is underserved by computing today, because when people are going and building aircraft or aircraft engines, um, cars, people that are in warehouses, these are people that, that conventionally don't interact with a computer or smartphone or even a tablet. Um, a lot of the work instructions and other kinds of things that they need to, to go and do their work are delivered on paper. Uh, and what we're trying to do is to go and create a wearable interface powered by augmented reality to fundamentally change how, um, how they work. Our focus always has been on wearable technology. Um, when, you, when we first got started actually working locally here with the Department of Defense and building um, augmented reality applications on wearable devices, um, also known as smart glasses, and that's always been the, the focus of what, uh, what we saw as the fundamental value proposition mm -hmm. that we brought to the people is that um, smart glasses are very, very unique in a sense that you can go and create a, a hands-free user interface and you can go and consume information on a heads-up fashion. So within the military, the applications are obvious. Um, and as you go and translate that into the, the industrial workforce, um, these are also the same kinds of people that, that are constantly working with their hands, building, moving, or maintaining or servicing things. So this sounds like it's an ideal kind of application for people that are out in the field that need to have some connection to technology using a wearable device to, to give them information. Can you talk to me about how the interface works for someone in the field that happens to be using Upskills technology? So I should mention that Upskills is a software company. How people work with the, the glasses is that we build a, a software platform called Skylight. And Skylight basically is the, the, the extension of the, the rest of the digital industrial enterprise. I know that's a really large term, but really what this means is all of the systems that people are routinely accessing every single day on their computers and on their workstations and what have you to get kind of the higher level workflow of what it is that they need to do for the day. What Skylight connects people um, with is on smart glasses, Skylight provides that connection into all of those systems that people are using so that it's, it's information that you can go and take on the go and you have the information right where you want it and right where you need it, and you don't have to go and interrupt what you're doing to be able to go and access that. So tell me about who your customers are and how they're using the Skylight platform. So we're, we're really proud of our uh, growing list of customers, and um, I can name a, a few examples, but there, there are lots more that we work with. One example that I can, I can say is what we're doing with the Boeing company. 
So there are Boeing technicians that are that are in their assembly line building wire harnesses, which is a very very complicated assembly, um, requires lots and lots of labor and a number of different special skill sets to be able to build it right. Because as we we say in one of the videos that uh, um, we help Boeing produce, you can't pull over when something goes wrong when you're forty thousand feet up in the air. So. First-time quality and making sure that you've built a reliable product is absolutely critical to what Boeing does. What we have been able to go and do is by connecting uh, connecting the, the wire harness um, assembly technicians with their digital information and creating a hands-free interface actually using speech recognition on smart glasses using Skylight, we were able to go and drive an average of 25% efficiency gains, as well as having um, near-perfect first-time quality. And that's that's game-changing for Boeing. That's game-changing game for, for everybody. But I, I really like what Boeing did in calling what the, the impact of it is. And they call it a, a step function change. And so how does a company discover that this is a solution for them? Do you, do you have to go into the factory line and just do time and motion studies to figure out where there's inefficiencies and then come up with a, a way to get the service for them? When we were first starting the business, uh, we were a number of different technologists, really excited by the technology that and, and so seeing the promise. So we, we admittedly kind of got ourselves into, uh, we had a hammer and we looked around and everything looked like a nail. What what we have now since done, obviously, is uh, we've, we've matured as a, as a business and we are able to now go and talk to customers about the kinds of problems that they're having um, in their production lines, in their supply chain, in their warehouses, and out in the field in the service environment, and work with them to to understand how our technology can go and solve the problems that they have, not the other way around. Not here's this really really cool technology, and you should go and use it. Uh, we're now able to do much better in working with them to to marry kind of the problems with the technology that we have. Um, and any customer that we go to, it wouldn't be uncommon for us to go and come up with hundreds of use cases where they can go and see this get applied today. So I, I saw the video for uh, the Boeing factory. And what was interesting to me is I saw people that were using this for wiring the aircraft they had in front of them. And uh, in real time, uh, they saw which wire needed to go into a, a socket in order to do the correct wiring for this aircraft. And uh, the thing that I thought was interesting is this was able to let them work hands-free so they didn't have to pull something up on a computer laptop or do something that was interruptive, which actually frees them up to be more productive. The, the fundamental benefit that we, we bring, which is hands-free and has a heads-up access to information, uh, is a pretty universal theme. But it doesn't necessarily have to be people interacting with data that resides in, in company systems of record. But it could also be uh, hands-free and heads-up access to remote expertise. Mm -hmm. So being able to go and connect you know, one technician that's out in the field and being able to connect them into the engineering center. And, um, you know, maybe the person that, that built a particular piece of equipment that you're trying to go and service. That's interesting to me because it seems like what this wearable technology is, is is something that's really effective for businesses to use. But that wasn't always the case. When, when Google Glass first came out, Google Glass was something that was directly marketed to consumers. But then you saw that there was kind of a consumer backlash or consumers weren't ready for the product yet. Maybe there wasn't the right product market fit. And then all of a sudden, Google Glass was something being ridiculed. 
Uh, but now it seems like it's turned around and uh, there's a real business use case here for using Google Glass and other wearable technology uh, like smart glasses to use this product in, in business. Uh, tell me what Google got wrong and what they got right. It's no question at this point with the benefit of hindsight that, that Google um, Google missed on being able to go and direct their efforts towards consumer. I think it was maybe too much too soon and without having to really thought through um, the, the, the implications, whether or not it's social, it's economic, what have you, of how a wearable computer with a front-facing camera, by the way, um, is going to be received by the, the public. Uh, this is a classic example of really, really cool technology. And uh, once you have it, everything just looks like a, a problem that your technology can go and solve. You know, and I got to give Google credit here. They actually course corrected much, much faster than um, people think. When they started seeing uh, interest from developers like us and lots of customers, for example, the Boeing company was one of the early adopters of um, Google Glass and the first version of it, the Explorer edition. Google clearly saw that there was a, a market that, that maybe um, was coming on even stronger in the, in the enterprise than in the consumer context. So I got to give them credit for having orchestrated that transition. And of course, the, the second version, which we're very excited, is now in the public domain because Upscale had been working with Google over the, the last two years around um, the, the Glass Enterprise Edition. And uh, obviously, a lot of what they've done in their strategy change and working with companies like us has been has been something that's been received very, very positively. And it sounds also, too, like some of your customers will use the software development kit to find software solutions that work for their enterprise, right? That's right. Uh, Skylight by, by design is actually designed as – by design is a platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what a platform in the software world means is that people can go and use our SDKs as well as uh, a number of features that we have actually introduced that, that don't require programming to be able to go and create applications that run on – um, smart glasses. So there's a, a component of self-serve, which if you zoom out broadly within the trend of um, how software development is being done, the the barrier to entry um, for app development is actually lowering drastically. Mm-hmm. And we, of course, are also following that trend very closely, and we're, we're constantly building in feature sets uh, that allow people to either program using RSDKs with um, the common tools that they already know how to how to leverage. So, you know, web developer, for example, can go and build AR applications. We also empower the, the people that, you know, that actually govern the workflows uh, in a factory. And, and those guys don't know how to program. Those, those guys are manufacturing engineers and process engineers who can tell you how to, how to go and build a certain product in order but you know they've traditionally had to go and engage with a, a programmer to to be able to turn that into AR workflows. And what we're bringing to the table with our product uh, is that those manufacturing engineers can be empowered to go and build those workflows end to end using our web interface. And what programming languages are programmers using to interact with uh, the Skylight platform? C sharp and dot, uh, C sharp slash dot net, uh, JavaScript, Python, Go are. Uh, a subset of the the languages that people can go and use, but Skylight as the the platform actually has a, a very robust um, API that allows people to use virtually any language that supports uh, the the RESTful API, which is a very common programming interface. 
Now, this is something I probably should have asked before, but just to clarify for listeners out there that might not know the difference, what is the difference between AR, augmented reality, and VR, virtual reality? Good good question. Um, augmented reality, the, the key difference between AR and VR is the is whether or not the user is completely um, closed off from the real world. So it's more immersive, really, with VR then. Right. So the the goal of VR is to to bring you into an entirely different location, put you in Mars, for example, um, and and they do that by by completely blocking your vision, and in some cases even other senses like your 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 hearing, to be able to go and put you in an entirely virtual environment. What augmented reality does is it's using a variety of digital content. A lot of it is visual, but it also could be audio to to go and enhance the real world around you. What's interesting to me is you see this kind of bifurcation of virtual reality and augmented reality um, from where they were at one time. I think they were originally the same technology, but it seems like AR might have the most potential use uh, in the future because it just seems like it's less intrusive than virtual reality. So VR certainly is is growing quickly. Uh, and I, I would argue that over the last maybe two or three years, it it, it had more mind share than, than AR in the space. I do see that 2018, that, that trend is trying to go and shift more in favor of AR. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that AR is something that you can go and use in your real and everyday life. As, as the technology improves, um, and certainly when it becomes more viable for the consumer sector, you're going to see people using AR to, to go and do everyday things. Whereas in VR, the, the nature of VR means that you're, you're being closed off from the real world, and therefore the environments where you can go in and experience VR is going to be limited to areas where nothing is going to hurt you. The idea of kind of closing someone off uh, to be able to, from being able to see or being able to hear, and then putting them in a different world can be can be inspiring on some way, but it could also be potentially dangerous if it's not deployed properly. So let's talk about the future of AR. What does it look like for the next few years, and what does it look like for the next ten years? I I like these questions. <laughs> I like asking these questions. Not everybody likes answering them though. <laughs> What, what VR and AR means, I think you'll see VR continue to go and make strong progress in, um, in applications like gaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's clear that there's a lot of investments that are going into it, and there's a lot of content that's also going into it that are very consumer-friendly. So the days of being able to go and do you know, movies that are, that are shot in, in 2D, and now, of course, over the last 10 years, we saw being able to go and see movies in 3D what if VR now um, takes that into the next level and you're now immersed in the scenes? Um, you can certainly you know, see the technology trend towards that in the, in the consumer context in, in VR. Um, I can totally see that happen. I also expect, just as hardware technology goes, that the kinds of headsets that people are going and putting on are going to get drastically smaller. They're going to become more powerful. Hopefully lightweight too, right? Exactly, lightweight, something that you can go and wear for you know more than a more than a few hours, and on the display and the optics technology side, and you know this is an area that I I, I monitor quite closely. Um, I think we're we're very quickly approaching a world where, um, I, well, let me pause here for a second. Do you remember the the earliest uh, digital cameras? 
like a, a 0.5 megapixel camera. Yes, yeah, right? I remember those, yeah. So if you looked at the the pictures that it was taking, um, you know, it's grainy, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't look great, doesn't feel like it's a real picture. Um, and I think in some of the, the early VR uh, products that we're seeing out in the market right now, um, it's that effect all over again. So people are still seeing pixels and a lot of that just kind of, they're, they're subtle way, these are subtle ways that VR is still telling the user, hey, by the way, um, you're in in you're in a virtual world, and I think what what's going to happen with um, display and optics technology is that it's going to become even more more dense to a point where um, there's going to be this kind of the the physical virtual line is going to blur, even in the VR context. That's right. And I think, the, you know, when new technology like this that are really paradigm shifting ends up getting introduced into the market, it also creates a whole slew of problems that, you know, not even just in the tech community, but in the medical community and, and even in the legal community from a regulatory perspective. Um, these these are problems that people will have to go and solve. For example, when um, when the initial set of smartphones and Google Maps came out, no one knew that, you know, being able to go and do texting and driving and, you know, um, you're, you're crossing a sidewalk and you're texting and you're potentially, you know, putting yourself in danger. These were problems that really people didn't um, fully grasp at the time. So, you know, when, when new paradigm shifting technology gets introduced, there are also a number of issues that, um, that the community has to, to work to go and resolve. So let's talk about that for just a moment here, because... Uh, I, I know that there is technology now, like say you're behind the wheel. Some vehicles actually have displays that display on the windscreen that will tell you, you know, your miles per hour, locations around you. It'll have that augmented reality on there. And the other thing, too, is uh, using your mobile phone in public places, walking around. People have their heads down, look, looking over their phone, kind of hunched up, but not paying attention to the the surroundings around them. Are you going to see more AR uh, help people navigate their environments more fluently, in a sense, because of the danger that's involved with some of these things? Sure. And certainly within the, the, the example that you said about people putting their head down and looking at their mobile phones as they're walking about, there's a role that AR and, and wearable technology broadly, particularly glasses, will play in being able to go and reduce that amount of distractions. Um, we work with customers that are that are doing this today in the industrial context where you get to go and keep your eyes and hands on the thing that actually matters rather than having to go and fumble the device that's trying to tell you what to do. So, you know, as that translates into a consumer context, uh, some of the solutions associated with um, with the problem of p- distracted drivers and distracted walkers and um, people just being too immersed in the smartphones and not into the real world. There is a rule that AR and wearables is going to absolutely play that's going to address that. So we talked about the unintended consequences of the technology that was developed in the last 10 years. How do we future-proof the technology that's currently being developed now? How do we know that this is not going to have some kind of negative consequence in the future? Until people start building uh, a level of familiarity and associated with new technology, some of those problems... um, 
that are Another way to put it is that there will emerge a set of problems that even the the best of best of minds um, that are out there will not have thought of. So there, you know, you certainly don't want to go and hold off progress and and technology development uh, just because you're you're afraid of the potential negative consequences. It's a it's a constant cost benefit kind of an analysis. Sure. Uh, does do the benefits um, associated with this particular technology outweigh the the potential downsides. And if the idea is yes, then, you know, it's important to try and get it into the hands of people and, um, and be in position to be able to go and quickly iterate to, to go and resolve any of the issues that are out there, which, which are not drastically different from how companies go and, and ship products today out into the market and not necessarily just limited in technology. Well, it seems like we have more access to data right now that we can actually look at the data to indicate whether or some, whether or not something's going to be a a potential technology that has practical application. But I think what's interesting, I don't, I don't know if you've been following this conversation, though, but developers of mobile phones, and especially social media on mobile phones, know that they've intentionally been making this technology addictive, as they say, which is gamifying the technology, um, making the software so that people constantly feel like they have to check their mobile devices or constantly be uh, online uh, and have a presence there. Um, but now they're starting to kind of retract and say, hey, maybe this wasn't the best thing to do all along, you know, because we're seeing, you know, young children come out and use tablets, you know, before they even know how to speak. Do we just have to have this hindsight bias after, you know, technology has proved that maybe it's it's not uh, serving the, the, the needs that we have? Or is it basically a matter of that we have to evolve ourselves to the technology? I, I think it's a bit of both. And, and being that, you know, we're in the D.C. area, um, it, there's there's always kind of the the social responsibility uh, that weighs on the you know weighs on the people that are that are in these kinds of industries and I and I do think that you know the companies do need to take more of an active role in you know becoming socially responsible around the products and the technologies that they're building and um, you know I, and I would argue that some companies do it better than others but you know it's it's clear that. Um, if we look at kind of the smartphone technology and internet connectivity and other kinds of things like that as a part of, you know, the the next kind of the the information revolution, um, I think a lot of people jumped into it uh, very quickly as well they should have. And there's progress that that we can go and credit them to for having been made. But with the benefit of hindsight, of course, there are certain things that. Um, that were that were missed, you know, the the idea of digital addiction and other kinds of things like that are are things that we have to um, we have to work together as a community to to find a, a viable solution for. Yeah, ten years prior, if you had asked me if I would be on my phone uh, more than six hours a day, I probably would have said you're you're nuts. I don't, I'm not making those long of phone calls. But most people aren't using their mobile devices for phone calls. They're using it for texting or they're using it for checking social media. Sometimes arranging dinner plans on there, you know, checking available show times for movies. They're they're basically using it to kind of organize their whole life. And 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 now that we've shrunk the computer down to the size of something that's that's pocket sized, this is a real big consequence uh, to how we interact with the world. And I don't think anyone's really had a chance to to fully study how we're now interfacing with the world. Um, so uh, now you have an engineering background. Uh, and you like to come from a technologist kind of perspective when it comes to working on the projects that you work on. Talk to me from an engineering standpoint, um, how you see the technology in wearables starting to evolve. 
there there are certain elements uh being an engineer that is uh that are that are evolving more quickly um display technology is getting really you know really really good the wireless networking and connectivity is getting really really good sensors are getting good um what wearable tech broadly is still being bottlenecked by and and i'm a i'm an electrical engineer by training and i practice software now um, has to do, has nothing to do with electrical engineering or um, or software, and that is, that is the battery technology. Um, this isn't a problem that's unique to wearable tech. Um, you know, we would all love someday cheap electric cars that can go and drive a thousand miles on a charge and charge in five minutes. But uh, you know, battery technology is uh, what's hampering a lot of the 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 development and really being able to kind of collapse these devices into. Um, the smart versions of the devices that that we're uh, we're using every day, like watches and glasses and what have you. Yeah, it's interesting. We were just talking about smart watches before we started taping, and uh, the fact that you have to charge your watch maybe every three or four days now is is something that you know it's a new behavior you have to get used to instead of just you know throwing your watch on or leaving your watch on the whole time to continue to use it. Um, so, battery technology you think you think is kind of the limiting. Uh, part of the tech equation here? I, I think of all the limiting uh, factors that exist out there um, from a technology perspective, battery certainly is the um, the biggest that, that comes to mind right now. Wow. That's fascinating. So now you obviously study uh, kind of the wearables and internet of things market. Are those two areas going to start to be integrated? Are you going to be speaking into your smartwatch, your glasses to tell you to turn the lights on and, and you know, start your car up? Or uh, is this still a ways off in the future? It's happening now, right? And and the the example that you gave is a, a perfect one. It's the marriage of um, the Internet of Things with sensors and control systems kind of everywhere. Uh, you now have the role that things like uh, natural language processing engines uh, that are that are cloud hosted uh, that is providing the the actual interface as to how you're interacting with the information. And then you've got wearables like smartwatches and glasses that that are. Um, you know that is basically the interface into the the rest of your connected world, the Internet of Things. Uh, this is happening today. You know, I I have a I have a, a connected lighting setup with a, a Nest thermostat and a smart door lock and all kinds of things like that, and I can control all of that by speaking it into um, my smartwatch. It's it's just crazy to think that we've we've actually come to that point. Um, where especially like the uh, the smart home technologies are now starting to be marketed and sold widespread across the, the country. Um, but it, it seems like we're actually kind of behind the curve, um, behind a lot of other countries. I feel like some other places have done this better than us in some sense. Like mobile technology was way ahead of the U.S., um, I think like in Europe and the Asian markets, way before we started to adopt a lot of it. Are there any other technologies that you see out there in the world that are going to still take a while to adopt here in the U.S. market or North American market? You know, what, what comes to mind right now, just because it's it's such a hot topic, um, is the the blockchain technology mm-hmm. and, and all of the cryptocurrency and other kinds of things like that. Um, me personally, I'm actually, I'm excited by cryptocurrency, but I'm actually more excited by the, the fundamental technology that's driving cryptocurrency, which is blockchain. Mm-hmm. And it's the ability to go and do, you know, a, a cryptography-based kinds of exchanges of, of things, whether or not that's currency, but it could also be a way to go and do microtransactions, you know, between people to people while guaranteeing the security. So um, you're starting to see a lot of that come up in Europe. 
certainly Asia is a very hotbed um, area of it that that frankly also is dra- driving a lot of the the speculative kind of rises in uh, in some of the the crypto cryptocurrency um, domains. But uh, this is an area where I think in the U.S. there there are pockets of excitement that that certainly exist, and a lot of people are working on the foundational technology, mm-hmm. which by the way may at the end of the day. With the benefit of hindsight, ten years later, uh, we may very well say that you know the U.S. was right in in actually fostering kind of investments into the core technology that has applicability that goes way beyond just being able to go into financial transactions. That's the interesting thing I, I've been hearing about this is that it's not Bitcoin or any of the cryptocurrencies that are really the revolutionary technology. It's the blockchain, which is the underlying technology. So you, you really think the distributed ledger is kind of like the the killer app? Of the next uh, ten years, I, I think it depends on what how these things are being um, being you know used. As people equipped with smartphones and maybe glasses and other kinds of sensors are able to go and create more content that's unique, um, you know. And at CES, I, and I was just at CES a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the big news was that Kodak, hundred and twenty year old company went and introduced something called a Kodak coin. I heard about this. Yeah, tell us. So, you know, it's it's an altcoin, so an, an alternative kind of a, a form of um, cryptocurrency that um, at a high level kind of helps people uh, ensure digital ownership associated with the content that they're, um, that they're distributing out there. And potentially that opens up the ability to go and, you know, control distribution of the um, of photos and videos and other kinds of media content that you've done. It also allows for a potential path for you to be able to go monetize it, which is also interesting. Um, let's geek out for a second here. So you were just at CES. We haven't, we haven't been doing that? <laughs> we, no, but I, I'm, I'm really interested to see, like, were there any takeaways that you saw from this year's uh, Consumer Electronics Conference um, that you think might have the potential to kind of be the next big thing? So... This year's CES was was very interesting um, to me. First of all, there was a great flood of Las Vegas, and then there was the great blackout of Las Vegas. So in terms of natural <laughs> disasters, I think uh, they had it pretty well covered here. Um, I've read a lot of things uh, that were, um, you know, a post facto. Some went as far as kind of starting to call the demise of CES, that, you know, innovation that used to be shown up and down there is now dead. And, you know, it's more of the same thing. I guess the the biggest takeaway that that I was um, I was really excited by is the fact that I've been going to CES for the last eight years, and and admittedly this year was lighter on innovation that that really kind of brought game changing technology that that made me pause and say, oh wow, that's really really cool. Um, but I I actually had that same kind of a reaction going to um, you know different exhibits that's run by really big companies and also really small companies. And um, the the takeaway here is that people are actually coming to CES with products that are market ready. Mm-hmm. So dial back five years ago, there were a number of companies that were bringing in AR headsets and, and VR headsets and smart home sensors and, you know, 360 cameras, all kinds of things like that that you see at CES. Five years ago, all of those were prototypes that came in with heavy caveats. If I wanted to go and buy one, I might have had to go and sell my house to go and do it. Um, now these are generally available products that that look and feel like a product, a product that that I can go and reasonably afford if you know this is something that I really wanted to do. 
Um, so being able to kind of see the evolution of how the technology uh, providers and the ecosystems evolved to to bring market ready products was uh, that was a big impression and that 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 has left a lasting impression on me because it was light on innovation but it was heavy on products and yeah. that's as as a as a product person and as someone that's obviously got you know a personal investment into seeing things like AR and VR and even smart home wearables uh, take off uh, I was really encouraged by this. Yeah, I think it's it's actually good for companies to have something that's market ready um, because they've already sunk their resources and bet on themselves in a sense to make sure that this is something that um, they should be bringing to a conference like that. But I understand like the need for for seeing kind of newer innovative technology that's still kind of in, in a prototype form um, because that's really where the future of a lot of things come. Um, before we started taping again, there was another conversation we had, which was how Upskill, formerly Apex Labs, um, really got a lot of its technology from the government um, when it started out. And I, I think that, that speaks to kind of the commercialization of government technologies that really is, is a key or vital process to technological development that we don't always think about. Uh, can you talk to me about how you are able to figure out like what technologies have practical applications whenever it goes to when it comes to looking at what the government's coming up with so the the government actually assigns a a, a numeric rating on you know should surprise no one and it's called the technology readiness level so and and ar at the time when we were working on it um ar on wearables so you know ar on smart glasses had a, a trl that was between five and a six Seven is considered to be, you know, field ready, and then nine is considered to be fully mature and somewhat commoditized. So, you know, we were very fortunate that there were a number of, um, you know, research that was done even before we started working on this uh, seven years ago, that that brought kind of the the level of the fundamental technology down to, you know, up to that that kind of a level. So that's always a good indicator as to, you know, how mature certain technology is, is at least according to the government and whether or not it is it is battle ready. Um, for us, you know, we also look at the ecosystem and the development that, you know, companies big and smaller are making in building some of that foundational technology. So we talked about, you know, the role that blockchain has in the whole, you know, cryptocurrency craze. So it's easy for us to be able to go in and do a little bit of trend spotting by looking at things like on the hardware side for AR and smart glasses, it would be the optics technology and display technology processing. Um, on the software side, it would be, you know, looking for things like object recognition algorithms and, you know, 3D visualization tool sets and, and things like that. So at the time when we uh, when we got started on this, we saw that there were certainly enough developments that were happening in the space to, and, and toolkits that we can go and, and leverage. Certain toolkits that, that, by the way, weren't necessarily ready for AR that we can go and um smartly leveraged to go and start building on, you know, what been what we have been very fortunate to have as an early mover advantage. So now Upskill, did you make, do you feel like you made like an early kind of bet on AR being uh, a, a huge technology that had potential future uses? Or were there other, a bunch of other companies also at that same time that were kind of testing this out? We were very fortunate um, being, you know, being um, the DC area based business and you know a number of us having had experience uh working with the department of defense that we were able to go and effectively work with the dod who helped us uh bootstrap the business around the vision 
the vision that that we all had was very very clear and that AR is game changing technology and it's no longer science science fiction. Um, Brian, my CEO, you know, um, he used the term science fact, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I give him a hard time about it uh, from time to time, but um, you know, there's there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, uh, we saw that AR was exiting out of science fiction and that it was becoming a reality. Pardon the pun, and um, and you know, that's what got us kind of jumping in feet first and. The one thing that, that we can go and give ourselves credit for is this unwavering focus that we've had on the vision that AR is going to be a big, big deal, and it's going to be a big deal to lots of different people in the world. And so just tell me about some of the practical applications you have with your current customers and some, who some of the customers are. So at, at Boeing, we're, we're, using, um, we're using smart glasses uh, to be able to help Boeing go and build aircraft faster. And that means, you know, on complex assemblies like wire harnesses, but a number of other tasks that people are doing to go and build an airplane. Uh, another customer that we have is is GE, and across multiple business units within GE, we have people that are that are doing um, that are doing complex assembly, that are doing field service, and also that are helping um, pull together kits, for example, manufacturing kits. Um, by pulling parts and inventorying items from their warehouse. Another customer that uh, that we recently publicized is actually, if you think about Boeing and GE as kind of the traditional industrial mold, mm-hmm. um, Coca-Cola is another example that's on the other extreme. It's a brand that is globally known, and it's something that people use every day. Um, Coca-Cola's got a very interesting example where their, their plants, which uh, their bottling plants that they run all over the world, um, they're they're extremely automated. You know, they're doing, I God knows, however many cans and bottles of Coke and Sprite and whatever a day. So it's not necessarily, you know, smart glasses and AR isn't necessarily being used to go and help them go and um, and automate that process even further. In fact, it's actually upskilling uh, the the role that people have in those operations by. Um, by more effectively facilitating what they call a line changeover. So a line changeover happens when um, that automated line, the the big bottling machines, Mm -hmm. have to be stopped to be able to go and change materials that go from a 20-ounce bottle of Coke to a 12-ounce can of Sprite. And that is a labor-intensive process that has to be kind of orchestrated very, very carefully. And obviously... If um, if there are errors that are made in that process, then the whole lot may may need to be scrapped. That's still manual too. It's not automated. That's right. Okay, so that's something we really haven't talked about too. Is the fact that uh, jobs are going to be increasingly automated in the future, um, but that's contrary to what upskill stands for, which is in your name, upskilling the labor force that you have. Can you talk to me about how upskill is working with the labor force to help them adopt to the twenty first century? Our view is that this is not necessarily a, a, a people versus machines um, kinds of an environment, but it is very much people working with machines. I think, um, you know, say, for for example, 10 years ago, if you rejected the idea of a smartphone and kind of held your view until now, then you would have been left behind um, amongst other people that are using that technology that are making their lives better. So there you know, we, we do have to go and embrace the role that automation is going to have um, across how, how people work today. But what this also means is that there is kind of a paradigm shift if you talk about the future of work 
uh, in, in being able to have people more effectively be in roles where where people are uniquely best positioned to go and do the things that, that they need to do. Well, great. Well, thanks for stopping by today. Sure. Thank you. Catch us next time on DC Entrepreneur. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog. If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode. And thanks for listening.